Hey, everyone. Hungry for more knowledge food? Well, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash curbsiders and become part of our staff at the prestigious Cashlack Memorial Hospital. That's right. We've been hard at work upgrading our website, expanding our video offerings, recording new seasons of Teach and Addiction Medicine miniseries, and growing our Digest newsletter. With the Curbsiders Patreon, you can become a house officer and get access to twice-monthly bonus audio and video episodes with me and Paul, recapping episodes, sharing picks of the week, and answering listener questions. Or you can opt for full Cashlack admitting privileges and get all episodes ad-free, including the entire back catalog, plus the bonus episodes, and you're going to get access to Cashlack's Discord forum where you can connect, share ideas, and just basically ask us and our team anything. So join our community today at patreon.com slash curbsiders and become part of the Cashlack community. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto, here with two great friends, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams and Chris the Chew Man Chew. This is uh, part one of two recap sessions. These will be released as one mega episode uh, where we're at S-Gym 2023. Paul, is it S-Gym or S-G-I-M? I was going to ask you. I, I, well, I go Sigum. I was going to so say like, Sigum. You know, Sigum. People say or Sigum. Sigum. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of the word Sigum. I'm a fan of S-G-I-M and S-Gym, but not Sigum. But I like the organization as a whole, no matter what you call it. I see. It. Yeah. That's the incorrect opinion. But I, I mean, I, <laughs> in terms of the pronunciation, but I agree it is a, a special organization for sure. All right. So we'll, we'll have a second <laughs> session where some other friends will join us later. And Wayne, we need to ask them how they pronounce it too. I think this is now. Yeah. Maybe they could tweet at us or tweet at Paul because yeah. I'm not on Twitter. A but, pronunciation uh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so Paul, uh, why don't you remind people, what is it that we do on the curbsiders? <laughs> sure. We are. The Internal Medicine Podcast, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. But of course, our format a little bit different this time around, Matt, we're recapping some of the sessions that we've been to. Some of them have been sort of standard lecture, clinical update presentations. Some have been workshops that have been more interactive, but in any case, loaded with pearls and actionable stuff to help us take better care of patients and teach better. That's right. And we, we're going to start with I guess, uh, well, which pearls do you want to start with, Paul? I know you have a lot of sessions that you've been attending, and uh, let's let's go to you first. I think, why don't we start with the plenary, because uh, I think Chris has some thoughts on some of the stuff here, too. I'm not going to focus on, like, the big 10 speeches, but I thought some of the, the oral presentations at the beginning were fascinating and really compelling, and I think may impact practice, um, more, maybe policy more than practice to some extent. But one of the one of the talks that was given was this, the, the effect of basic income on healthcare utilization given by uh, Sumit Agarwal at Brigham and Women's with his team. And so basically what this was, was a study of a neighborhood uh, called Chelsea in Boston, which is economically poor. It is majority minority. The average income is about $1,500 a month. And basically they put on a lottery for patients or for these for these folks to get debit cards for $400 a month. No strings attached. They could do whatever they wanted to with it. It was just all you had to do was sort of be in this neighborhood and sort of meet those qualifications that way. But they could spend it however they liked. And the outcomes they were looking at is how did this impact their healthcare utilization? And I won't go through all of this in, in terms of background demographics, um, since I, we've got more actual pearls to talk about, but it, it significantly decreased ED visits by about a third in the, the group that actually got the cash benefit. Um, 
And a lot of that was driven by decrease in visits for behavioral health, and it almost completely eliminated ED visits for substance use disorder, fascinatingly. There was an increase in outpatient utilization driven largely by subspecialty care, which is also interesting. It's hard to know if that meant that money was being used for transportation or or to facilitate and coordinate that kind of care. So it was fascinating. And it's, I mean, it's kind of self-evident. If people have more money, they live better. But this this seems to, it, it looks specifically to how they use healthcare. And I thought it was a really fascinating and, and compelling, hideously expensive pilot. I think $9 million was the, was the, the number I heard, Chris. Yeah, it, it was very interesting. And then how they were able to somehow pair all these patients with their electronic medical record in this sort of retrospective way. Um, and, you know, people were talking about, it. apparently it was, um, it was, you know, I think there were like two major healthcare systems. So yeah. that allowed them to get maybe captured, maybe like, I think like two thirds or 75% of all the patients there, but it was, it was fascinating. And then seeing the, the dichotomy or the, the, the response of, decrease ED visits, but increase outpatient visits. And, you know, I think a lot of people really did talk about that. It'd be really interesting to see the cost benefit change there because obviously ED visits are much more expensive. Yep. Would that offset the cost of the $9 million for sort of this basic wage? Hard to say, but still, it's. I thought it was a great, great yeah. study. Yeah, interesting. I think we'll hopefully lead to further funding to look even more at them. When AI puts everyone out of jobs, uh, <laughs> we'll just give everyone will have a basic income yeah. and, and we'll... UBI yeah. and universal healthcare and then the world will be okay. Yeah. That's that's the uh, vision. What else? What else about the plenary, Paul? Did you want to talk about any any curbsiders presenting at the we plenary? We have to hype up Carolyn Chan, who was, and then a brief um, guest appearance by by our own Kenny Morford too. So, but it was she was poised and and she was really impressive. She gave her talk on her development of a medical improvisation based interviewing curriculum. So basically, using improv to learn motivational interviewing skills uh, with, I believe it was medical residents, if I'm not mistaken. I don't want to yeah. eat her lunch. I'll let her talk more about it if, if she so chooses to. But they basically used improv that was well-received. The residents felt more comfortable doing it. They were more effective at doing it, and they actually didn't mind that modality as much as um, the idea of sort of role-playing and going through that stuff might be hideous to someone who's an introvert like me. The residents seemed to overall enjoy it. So it, um, an impressive, novel way to kind of teach a really important skill. Um, so, yeah, impressive work, and she did a great job. Yes, and... Yeah, nope. there you go. <laughs> there you go, Chris. That's right. Maybe Caroline can talk about it later. Okay. So let's, uh, Paul, what about clinical sessions that you went to? Uh, I think Ira is going to talk a little bit about trauma-informed care. I know you went to that one, uh, but anything that you took home from that that you really wanted to highlight for the audience? It had been some time since we'd had our trauma-informed care episode, so with, with Megan Gerber. So this was Trauma-Informed Carry Hands-On How-To for Clinical Practice with Rebecca Gold, Adelaide McClintock, Susan Nisser, uh, apologies if I mispronounced that, Amy Weil, and Megan Williams. And they, they went through, again, they, it's, it largely um, used the SAMHSA framework for trauma-informed care. So there are the three E's of trauma. There is the actual event, which may be um, the threat of physical or psychological harm or actual harm itself. And they, it can also be events, too. It can be ongoing, which is important to recognize. But even more importantly, the, the, I think the takeaway point I took is that the event almost doesn't matter, one of the speakers said. It's how the patient experienced the event is the more important thing. So the, the specific gory details don't matter. It's how the patient um, internalized it and sort of the impacts that they had on them, which leads to the, the effects of the event on the patient. And the other, the other sort of mnemonic is the four R's, the realizing that trauma is widespread and understanding paths for recovery, recognizing signs and symptoms, responding by integrating knowledge and resisting re-traumatization which is not an easy thing to say. And then they also talked a little bit about um, resiliency as well, which is not classically part of that framework. But the things I, for you, I would, I would reemphasize is universal precautions. So many of our patients have been through trauma. It's just worth recognizing that it exists and is out there being very sensitive to it. So part of the recognition 
can be if someone is having frequent no-shows to your visit or if they have uncontrolled chronic disease or substance use disorder or depression. That might not be happening in isolation. That might be a manifestation of a trauma that they've experienced that might be worth pursuing um, if you have that type of relationship with the patient that you're able to. And then the physical exam pointers I always think are amazing in terms of, I think these are things that we've talked about before, always asking permission, offering a chaperone at every single physical examination, which sounds burdensome, but most of the time, no one's going to want a chaperone. But the more practical things like always remaining in the patient's line of sight when you're, when you're doing an examination, announcing what you're going to do and why you're doing it, being mindful of draping, um, and then being mindful of language. So I, I think you've talked about this before, Matt, instead of saying, I'm going to listen to your lungs, I'm going to listen to the lungs, really kind of depersonalizing it and sort of not making it um, about a specific organ that you're sort of looking at or a specific body system. And then the other thing is that, and I still catch myself doing this, and I'm so glad to hear this over and over again, is avoiding the, the term for me, which can also be very traumatizing for patients. So, you know, move your gown for me or take a deep breath for me. Like, you don't have to, you can just stop. But, you know, yeah, <laughs> just please, just move, take please a, move this. Please take a deep breath um, yeah, is, is perfectly fine and kind of removing it as okay. a, a coercion kind of thing. So I, okay. I thought just a helpful reminder of a lot of stuff that we talked about. This episode is brought to you by Pattern Life. At Pattern, they give you a quick, simple way to compare and buy disability insurance. That's right. Busy doctors shouldn't have to worry about whether or not they're getting the best rates and discounts. Trying to research all your options and make the right decision while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. That's why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the disability insurance that they're buying. And they do this in three simple steps. First off, you request your quotes online at patternlife.com slash curbsiders. Second, compare your options and ask questions. And third, secure your policy. So check disability insurance off your list today. Be confident that you have the right policy so that your income is protected. And this is important. I have long-term disability insurance as a physician, and you should too. With a huge discount for doctors in training, now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at PatternLife.com slash Curbsiders. That's PatternLife.com slash Curbsiders. All right, Chris, you yeah. went to a clinical updates in cardiovascular risk factors talk. Tell us a little bit about that. What what you think is useful for the audience to know? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I always think about going to these clinical updates, you know, you know, here at SGM, we don't get, you can't see a lot of the slides ahead of time. So you, you don't know what you're going to get when you come in. And sometimes, especially working for the curbsiders, we, we, we read a lot of stuff. We're, we're pretty up to date. Um, and I was, I was very, very pleasantly surprised. I, I enjoyed the session a lot. It was called Clinical Updates and Cardiovascular Risk Factors. It was with Jennifer Cluett, Kelsey Bryant, Allison Crawford, Benjamin Gallagher, and Ava Singh. Um, and they did a great job and they, they brought some, some really fun and interesting articles, a couple that I knew, but really, I think it's really important to us for talk to talk about again. And some other ones that I'd never even heard of. So I sort of cherry picked three that I wanted to share with you guys today. Um, I guess the first one we can talk about is, um, the chlorothaladone versus hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension. This came out like right before the new year. And I could have sworn that we had talked about it on Digest or one of our hotcakes and stuff. And I looked, I, I know, couldn't find it. I know it. like back in the day, I think w like we talked about, you know, with multiple experts, J Joel Toff, of course, like talking about how we like chlorothaladone better for, CKD, for yeah. like blood pressure control. And just, you know, if someone's not responding or their, their labile blood pressure on hydrochlorothiazide because it's shorter acting, that chlorothaladone is a better choice. 
And uh, and I think Dr. Jordy Cohen also brought this up in an episode in a recent episode because it was like, is chlorothiazide better? We expected better outcomes with chlorothiazide than hydrochlorothiazide. Yeah. So you know, this was a great study because it was from the I think the di direct comparison project, uh, diuretic comparison mm -hmm. project, and so it was in the VA with over sixty five year old patients with hypertension already, and they're already on on hydrochlorothiazide, and basically they're. Uh, randomized to either stay on the hydrochlorothiazide or an ecopotent dose of chlorothalidone. And so the median follow-up was 2.4 years. Incidents of the primary outcome um, events, which were all cardiovascular events, did actually didn't differ, uh, differ significantly in either efficacy or safety. Um, obviously, there are some limitations to the study. They include basically a lot, of, a lot of the chlorothalidone were sort of low doses of chlorothalidone. The study population, because of the VA, was overwhelmingly white and male. Um, and Apparently, there was a lot of crossover between because it was open label. So there are more in the chlorothalidone that switched back to hydrochlorothiazide than the other way around. So I think the TLDR from this really is that, you know, switching patients from hydrochlorothiazide to chlorothalidone for just blood pressure control may be a little useful, but maybe, you know, it's probably not that useful that uh, in the overall. Chlorothalidone yeah. more expensive. You have more instances of hypokalemia. Um, and actually for people, you're trying to do combo medicines for adherence yeah. reasons, like there's no chlorothalidone combinations. Right. So I, I still think, well, I think what Dr. Cohen, Paul, tell me if this rings, I, I don't remember if this is the same exact study that she was mentioning, but the patients had well-controlled blood pressure. Like, it's not like these were patients with like resistant hypertension that were uncontrolled. And, and then you're, you're adding chlorothalidone and, and replacing the hydrochlorothiazide. We don't know if, because that's largely on the show how we've talked about using right. chlorothalidone. So I think what I would take away from this based on what you've said and what uh, we talked about with Dr. Cohen is if someone's well-controlled, there's no added benefit to adding chlorothalidone, but if they're, if they're uncontrolled, you, you might still consider it an option. Right. Paul, what do you think? No, I think that's right. And there's a little bit higher potency, but at sort of the, the cost of hypokalemia and some of the other stuff, but yeah, you would not, yeah, it, yeah. Everything you said sounds exactly correct. Exactly and I, correct. I would say to people, the, the, I checked this this week, the $4 formulary at, at uh, some of the big box re retailers has indapamide 1.25 or 2.5 milligrams. It's also a long-acting diuretic. Uh, and so that is a good option if chlorothalidone is too expensive. And we just don't think to use it, um, I think, just because we just... It's just not yeah, in any I combo pills. Don't use it. Their marketing department fell down somewhere along the line. They yeah, fell just... down, but I, I've used it uh, on uh, two patients and it's been great. So, uh, that, take that, take that for what you will. All right, Chris, what else, what else from this, uh, cardiovascular, uh, risk factor reduction talk that you went to, whatever it was called. <laughs> yeah. So the, the next one, uh, same with sort of hypertension, I, I wanted to bring this one up because, um, on previous episodes, you know, we talked about the Hygieia study. So a little bit of background is, you know, when we look at ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, people often dip at nighttime. Usually 10% is pretty reasonable. And then in the morning, you sort of have a small surge. You know, we have patients who are non-dippers, so they don't dip at all or they actually go up. And the question is, does nighttime dosing of blood pressure medicines make a difference? So this Hygieia study, which came out in 2019 in the oh, European Heart Journal, found there was a 45% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular death. And my heart failure and stroke. So it was huge. And I think, I can't remember, I, I feel like it was an episode we had with like Tony Brew or someone else. And it was just like, well, if you just, you know, if it doesn't cost anything just to do it at nighttime, if there's possibly some added benefit, it might be reasonable. Um, obviously, with diuretics, it might be a little more difficult. 
Um, but ever since then, apparently there's a huge controversy with Hygieia. Like there was a lot of weird things in terms of whether the methods were right, whether there was true randomization. There was like inconsistencies when you compare it to clinicaltrials.gov where people sort of pre-list what their methods are. Um, and apparently there's huge attrition rates too. Um, the journal did look back at it and they did not retract it, but apparently it was a big controversy. So luckily, more recently in October 2022, Lancet published um, this study called the TIME study, which had over 20,000 patients who completed the study. They randomized one-to-one to take either all blood pressure meds in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening. But the diuretic dose, you were allowed to be flexible if you had nocturia as, as a problem. So they found that the primary outcome was a composite of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for non-fatal cardiovascular events. And there was no difference at all. So I thought that was really interesting. A much better study and totally refutes a bad study, apparently. Um, and the things to look forward to, there's apparently uh, some big trials coming out of uh, Canada called the BedMed and the BedMed Frail studies. Wait, pause for Paul Williams' reaction to the trial name. Ooh, <laughs> not even trying. <laughs> he is not in a mood to be trifled <laughs> with today. Canada, <laughs> get your act together. <laughs> so we do have those to look forward to. So maybe, maybe, maybe next year when we come back, we'll be able to give you some updates on that. So how would you use this? It, based on the state of the evidence, how would you, what's going to be your practice is when patients ask, Dr. Chu, what should I do with my blood pressure meds? It's the same practice it always has been. Take it whenever you, whenever you can uh, remember. If it's the best way for you to remember, if it's the morning or nighttime, yeah. then do it. Okay. All right. Just love cardiologists. Just curious <laughs> to each other. Is it sleepy time or wakey time that we get the medication? Like, and there's just... <laughs> okay. So let's go. Uh, we, Chris, we're going to come back to you. May, I know you maybe have more from that, but let's 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 flash to Paul Williams, uh, uh, which is a weird way to say I, things. I don't like that. Yeah, Paul Williams, uh, Star Wife. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Williams, uh, Paul, tell me, you went to a talk about buprenorphine and chronic pain. I'm very interested in this because I I wasn't sure if this was referring to patients who. Uh, who have opioid use disorder and chronic pain or patients who just have chronic pain and are taking chronic opioids and they're switching them over to buprenorphine. So what what do we make of this and who are they recommending chronic buprenorphine therapy for? Great questions all. So this is the chronic pain and buprenorphine talk with Stacey Sherratt, Elizabeth Cuevas, Deanna Hill, Eliza Norwood, and Glena Tan. And apologies again if I mispronounced anyone's name. So this, this was a really a 30,000-foot view. I think the big takeaway is that this is complicated and it's going to be a lot of trial and error and talk to your pharmacy colleagues and have a team in place to kind of figure this out. And you'll need a lot of sort of patient check-ins. The, the overarching framework they did for this talk, which I found kind of interesting because I'd not heard about this before, is the spectrum of opioid use, um, ranging from opioid use disorder to physical dependence. And in this gray space in between, there's this um, entity known as complex persistent opioid dependence. And so this is characterized by poor pain control, where you keep escalating the dose, and the patients don't seem to do all that much better with the higher doses, but have bad outcomes if you try to dose reduce. And as they're explaining this, I feel like everyone in the same room had sort of the same expression, like, I, I have 10 patients that meet exactly what that is. So I, they're not chasing euphoria. It's, it, you know, they're really, they're, they're, the patient's goal is mitigation of their pain um, and higher function, but you're just not getting there with sort of your traditional uh, modalities. And so it was with that framework that maybe buprenorphine might be a good option for these patients. Um, so having said all that, they did sort of the, the bup review and sort of there's a lot of formulations available for buprenorphine, I think, which is one of the reasons why people are nervous about prescribing it. But there are buccal films known as Belbuca. There's the transdermal patch known as Butrans, notoriously difficult to get approved by insurance companies. And then there's the sublingual films, um, your buprenorphine naloxones, your, your 
Depo, Ibuprofen, and Zubzolves. So there's a billion names by, for these things. But in any case, their, their thought was is that these are good options for patients who might be in the situation. So the, the patients that we talked about were patients, the, at least the one that was discussed in my group, was someone who was already on chronic long-acting and short-acting opioids but was not achieving any kind of pain response. They wanted to come, on, come off these medications. Perhaps buprenorphine would be a good option for them. And so the big takeaway, and I'd love to hear, Chris, if you heard it, you know, the pearls that you got from this, is that for patients who are on relatively low um, morphine uh, equivalents, it, it's starting with one of the, the medications for pain, so the buccal film or the transdermal patch, because those tend to have lower doses. They tend to be dosed in micrograms as opposed to milligrams. If someone's already on um, full agonist therapy, like say someone who's on um, uh, MS content or long-acting morphine and then a short-acting um, pain control, that's someone for whom the sublingual formulations like the buprenorphine, naloxone, like your brand name suboxone might be a better choice because those are dosed to milligrams and tend to be a little bit more potent. Um, and then they did talk about initiation protocols and kind of gave, you can sort of do things that I was familiar with from treating opioid use disorder. There's the stop-start method where you just make someone go into withdrawal and then you start the buprenorphine versus cross-tapering, low-dose, low-dose initiation, which we've talked about at length on the show before, is a very reasonable option for someone, even when you're just using it for pain. So those are the, the big takeaways I took from it and, and the, the overarching theme that this is complicated and you'll need to talk to your friends and sort of do trial and error before you feel comfortable doing yeah. it. Yeah. So it sounds like we're still pretty early on in this. And you, so you could use it, anybody that's on chronic opioids uh, and is not not doing well, you could think about doing you could think about doing this. I blew past this because we've covered it on the show before, but buprenorphine by its very nature does not have the same kind of respiratory depression as full agonist therapy or sedation or euphoria. So that there's a lot of safety considerations that we like you for. Yeah. Okay. Chris, anything else to add from that to that session? Well, I mean, we, there are a lot of things that, you know, the, the, the session was packed. It was standing room only. It was crazy. And a lot, there are a lot of primary care docs in there trying to figure out how can I get chronic pain a little better controlled? And I think they were just looking for anything. Um, some of the things that they brought up, I thought was sort of, um, was interesting was this revised opiate risk tool to help us sort of figure out the risk for the patient. Um, what was interesting is the way workshops work is you sit with a bunch of other people and and if I, during these workshops, I find the people you sit next to actually might give you more information than you get from just the, the people putting on the workshop. And uh, he was just like, hey, you know, this opiate risk tool isn't actually very good. And he brought it up in the session. Like, yeah, we just wanted to give you an example of one of the tools that are out there. So I thought it was interesting that maybe we don't have a lot of good ways to, to assess. But really, you need to think about the patient, whether they, you know, what are the things you have to worry about? You know, our case had like a very elderly lady who was, who had failed pain medicines in the past, currently off medicines, but she was like 89, but still needed better pain control. We were trying to figure out where she was on the spectrum of, you know, opiate, you know, opiate use disorder versus the CPOT or whatever the, the other spectrum was and, you know, whether she would be a good, good uh, candidate for that. Um, and then also talking about, you know, these, again, as, uh, as Paul said, you know, all these really, you know, sort of low dose uh, versions and being, having those as availability, I thought it was great. So it'd be, yeah, it'd be nice if they were more available, I feel like they would be helpful because they're much, much lower doses. Like two milligrams of buprenorphine for somebody who's on five milligrams of oxycodone is like, it's, it's a huge step up in dose. So it's, it, it really has to be patients that are on higher doses of opioids that are going to get the milligram. And in my experience, at least in Pennsylvania, the, the two milligram, four milligram films or, or tablets are much cheaper than the the transdermal or the the buccal right. formulation, but imagine if you had the transdermal like a five microgram patch, like yeah. it's so much lower. And if you can get good control, I mean that's right. 
you wear it once a week. I mean, it seems fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So uh, more, I guess more to, more to come on that. I know our addiction medicine group is doing a full episode on that. So I think we'll, we'll have a lot more yeah, detail. And uh, I wanted to present guys uh, some, some pearls. Uh, the the North NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, I believe that's what it stands for, mm-hmm. in 2022 updated their guidelines um, specifically for using hormone therapy for treating some of the vasomotor symptoms of menopause. And uh, we had a great session with some wonderful experts. So the speakers at this were Deirdre Bashir, Andrea Carter, Melissa McNeil, Sarah Miriam, and Holly Thomas. And as I said, they did a fantastic job. And uh, this is a topic, I know we've done episodes on this way back, Paul, but I always just feel uncomfortable. You know, there's cardiovascular concerns, there's VTE concerns, there's breast cancer concerns. And so it just like this session was, and they had an algorithm, um, which I can try to uh, put some version of it into the show notes, but they had an algorithm for talking about like, how should you go about this and and what do they recommend? So let me, uh, let me pull up my slides, which now I lost place for. Okay. So some of the, some of the key points is that basically like, who are you going to select for this? So people should have at least moderate vasomotor symptoms before you consider this. And really the, the main group is going to be women under 60 or less than 10 years from menopause, because that's where the risk benefit is much more favorable in terms of benefits to risks. Are you guys using much of this in your practice or is are the same are you guys is the same uh fear of using it as I do? Yeah, Agreed. I tend to favor the, the medications I'm more comfortable with the non um the non-hormonal. So I'll do like gabapentins and the vaccines yeah. before I will do um yeah, the hormone replacement stuff. Yeah, there used to be a great app that would go through that with you know, I think that's out of date now and I can't mm-hmm. even update it. So but so there, there are some things that I thought were useful. I mean, you might get patients asking like uh they think that their cognitive decline or you know, brain fog and stuff like that is a re- good reason to to prescribe it, but it, it's really that's that's not necessarily recommended. Um, if they have vasomotor symptoms, you know, you can still try it and and talk. That was one of the questions specifically. You know, it was like with testosterone for men, people think it's this panacea; they're going to feel great, all their symptoms are going to get better. Uh, that's not necessarily the case, but if they have vasomotor symptoms that are moderate and you want to try it, you know, and the risk benefit matches up, you you can try it. It works. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I heard there's been a lot of changes and updates in like, you know, the risk for breast cancer and things like that when using hormonal therapy. And that's why it's, it's, it's not as, it's not as risky as that we used to think, which is why yeah. when you're looking at the risk benefit ratio, like probably more people could be on it than you think. Yeah. They said that the risk, um, the excess risk for breast cancer is, is with women on estrogen and progesterone and progesterone. Um, and it's, but it's about the same as if someone drinks, takes two drinks a day. So it's not like a gigantic excess risk. Uh, the absolute risk is probably relatively yeah. small. It's just the relative risk has increased. And, and the, the risk starts to go up, uh, around five years or so. So we were, one of the questions was about tapering. So if someone does end up starting it, you know, around five years, you might start to taper the whole time. If, if you decided at some point you're going to start them on it, it should be the lowest effective dose. And then you should try to taper them at five years because uh, once you get beyond seven years, there's not really a lot of evidence for safety, efficacy. And then uh, beyond 10 years, you know, you're sort of evidence-free zone. So uh, that was part of it. Yeah. And in Dr. McNeil's talk at ACP, actually, she made the point that the, the vasomotor symptoms tend to abate with time. 
genital urinary symptoms do not. And so yes. that uh, it's it's reasonable to sort of try to taper if you're treating, if you're using sort of the vasomotor specifically. Now, Paul, thank you for accidentally setting me up to make the point that there are such things as super flashers. And uh, these, <laughs> <What>? are, <laughs> these are women who may have symptoms beyond that 10-year point. Terrific. Uh, I mean, so, terrific. so, and they said that th there's a difference between starting hormonal therapy in a woman over 60 versus uh, continuing it in a woman who was under 60. So, it's not an absolute. It's still going to be a, a conversation. And any tips on those you really want to try to get off? Or do do they recommend like bridging with sort of the non-hormonals or like what? Did they uh, have anything there? I didn't get that specific question answered, but it was sort of a taper, you know, tapering down. Um, if I guess if they're already on the lowest dose, you can't taper, but kind of tapering down. And uh, another question you may not know the answer to is you mentioned at least moderate symptoms. Um, is there a scale or like how is that determined? Do you know, or is that just sort of by... Uh, I'm sure there's a scale, but I did. I, I, I did not know that. Right, I'm sorry. That's okay. You're super. <laughs> the, the, the one other thing that I wanted to, and and we probably should do a full episode on this, and and um, and I was also sort of there scouting for that. But uh, the out part of the algorithm they said is like, okay, so the first thing, let's say you have a woman under 60, less than 10 years from menopause, you're going to be like, okay, does this person have known cardiovascular disease? If they do, probably not a great candidate. Next thing you're going to do is if, if they don't have known disease, you're going to assess like what's their risk. So if they've had a CAC score and their CAC score is above 100, you know, that should, that should probably consider them as having disease. Um, or you can calculate their ASCVD risk score. People who are high risk, you know, probably should avoid um, putting them on hormone replacement therapy. Low risk patients uh, would be good candidates. And then the intermediate risk is sort of like looking at other risk factors. Maybe they have an old CT scan that shows like heavy coronary calcifications. They haven't had a formal CAC or score, or if they have uh, or a strong family history, maybe that would push you more against against using it. Um, it was interesting because there's they don't tell patients this when starting it. They were specific about this that like in, in women under sixty who start start hormone replacement therapy, it does seem like there might actually be some reduction in cardiovascular disease. But it's, I think it's not so clear that they would claim that and like start it as a cardiovascular, like, you know, risk redu reducer. Right. Well, that's we, when we talked with the, the USPS Tiff about that specifically is it, it, indeed there is the risk reduction, but we also have things that don't have um, some of the risks <laughs> right. with them. And, but that, that work just, yes. that work even better for risk reduction, like exercise. lipid control and exercise <laughs> and that, that kind of stuff. So it's, it, it would yeah. not be sufficient just to, to use it solely for cardiovascular risk reduction. And Maybe one of the last things I'll say about, um, not, not the last thing. The other thing they said is you can use the Gale risk score. Uh, so once you've gotten through the cardiovascular risk and you've decided, okay, whether they're low or inter if they're low risk and you want to prescribe or intermediate risk and you have a conversation, and you still want to prescribe the risk, assessing the risk of breast cancer. You can use the Gale, uh, score for their five-year risk of breast cancer. And if they have a lower risk of breast cancer, then, you know, it'd be more favorable to starting. Patients with a high risk of breast cancer, you probably shouldn't start. An intermediate, again, it's going to be like a shared decision-making thing. Um, so, so basically, you're assessing cardiovascular risk and breast cancer risk. If someone's had a, a prior like VTE or stroke, you know that would pretty much be a no-go. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I will say is the formulation. So the, it, it looks like the micro, some of the micronized progestin formulations uh, just have a better risk profile. Some of the transdermal uh, preparations have a better risk profile and there's a lot. I mean, there's some, some formulations are estrogen and progesterone they're transdermal. There's oral, there's IUDs. 
yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff, but essentially you just have to think like, okay, start start whatever formulation you're gonna try, start on a low dose. Uh, estrogen and progesterone should be used if they still have a uterus because you you know they're you don't want to just build up the lining without that protective effect of the progesterones, and uh, and that's it. You know they can if they have if they, if they no longer have a uterus, then they can get estrogen alone. So uh, it was a really good session. I do think we should do a full episode on this. Yeah. This is part two of the recap. We have a lot of great people with us: Carolyn Chan, Ira. Krizhanovskaya, wow. Paul Williams, <laughs> Justin Burke. And uh, we're going to start with Ira yeah. because uh, she has to get out of here. She's got important places to be, Paul. I mean, we all do. As do you, <laughs> yes. So probably by the end of this, it's just going to be me and Justin. <laughs> Uh, and pro- probably Chew Man, probably Chew Man will jump in too. How Otto dies, just talking to the microphone I, by himself. Yeah, just- <laughs> Chew, Chew Man's going to jump in too. He's uh. waiting in the wings. <laughs> He's <laughs> Chew, we have Chew Man in the basement drinking five cups of coffee right now, Paul. All right, Ira. Yes. Uh, tell us which session would you like to start with? You know, I think does it have a clever name? It does. It's Friday. <laughs> we got to be spicy, exciting. And I went to a session yesterday called "Making Sparks Fly." What's new in the evaluation and treatment of low sexual desire in women? And let me tell you, sparks were flying. So this is the team out of Pittsburgh, and they shared just incredible tools, incredible stats, too, around um, low sexual desire with significant distress, also called hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD. And it's super common. It affects many people. And now there are two FDA-approved medications to treat it. And so before we get into the treatment, one thing that I found uh, really helpful was that they shared a very easy validated tool to diagnose this, which is the Decreased Sexual Desire Screener, or DSDS, because how many acronyms aren't enough? There's never enough. Wow. I know. It's a simple five-question validated screen tool to help you kind of assess sexual problems and diagnose generalized acquired hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Did I say enough times? I, <laughs> HSD, yes. uh, HSDD. And so once you've made that diagnosis, you kind of have to go through and figure out, is this person premenopausal, postmenopausal? And if they are premenopausal, there are now two FDA-approved medications for them. Um, and that is, um, I'm going to butcher these names, but that is uh, flibenserin. It's a 5-HTA1 agonist and a 5-HTA2 antagonist. Um, and that, uh, has been effective. And again, FDA approved pill that you take daily. And then the other one, bromelanotide is a, um, melanocortin, uh, receptor agonist, um, which is a injection that you use and, um, you do it 45 minutes before anticipated sexual activity, side effect, hyperpigmentation. So interesting to note, oh. um, but is available. That, Makes sense, right? Yeah. Just okay. based on mechanism. Um, but what they were sharing is that these are, while these two are the FDA approved medications, there's also our tried and true bupropion, buspar, and actually testosterone. So hormone treatment has been- Wait, buspirone um, or bupropion? Sorry, bupropion and buspirone or buspar, both of them. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. So Anything the, with a B, I think actually. Yeah. yeah okay, exactly. That's good. So far not buprenorphine as far as I know. Just a great um, for- but yes. Uh, but exciting times because I feel like there's a lot of momentum also and um, there's FDA-approved medications. And one thing that they emphasize is that this is really great and also therapy we know works as well. And it's not, you know, there's different types of therapy and they actually offered a site that gets you access to sexual sexual health therapists as well. I'm a little skeptical of the philobanserin one, which yeah. with, I know it was a controversial approval process. It was initially not approved and then they like appealed it to get it approved because there was nothing else. 
Um, I think it causes like a lot of, is it dizziness, the side effect? I think so. so yeah. I, I, th- I have not used it, but I, I, did the experts get into like which one of these are they using? Do they, do they find them helpful? It's funny that you say that, Matt, because if I'm remembering correctly and I could be hallucinating because it's been a wild 48 hours and altitude gets to me, but I'm pretty sure that none of them have actually prescribed this, um, yeah. recently. So I, um, the experience with it in the room was low. Yes. Um, but I think the whole point is that you know that these things exist. Um, if you've tried therapy, you've tried bupropion, you've tried Buspar, you've kind of had these conversations and said, you know, maybe it's now time to look at something else. Yeah. Um, and the other things that they did mention was that, you know, sometimes look at the med list, like look at other medications, SSRIs, ACE inhibitors, mm-hmm. other things that patients are taking that might have an effect on sexual desire. And can we kind of make those changes before we add on another medication? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Comments from the, no? Okay. I think it's really to normalize of like now asking that question and like actually doing the screening and making it part of the purview of primary care. And yeah. I think when there's no treatments, it seems like a little bit of an awkward question to be like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that that's going on. <laughs> but yeah. now that it's like, okay, well, you know, there's a couple things we can at least try. I think it's normalizing bringing it into primary care. Yeah, we might we might need to visit this as like a full episode, Paul. I think, so. I, I think yes. because... Yeah, in yeah. terms of when, because if we're doing true screening, then when you do it, who do you choose? I feel like right. there's lots of sort of unanswered questions because otherwise yeah. you're already in sort of diagnosis land. So I'd love to hear right. more about this. And with well, the, we talked about the menopause guidelines being updated earlier. I, th- I feel like that could warrant a full episode as well. So we got some stuff to do. And they shared a stat that nearly half of women in the U.S. report low sexual desire. So I feel like there's like 50% of the country that we're like not having necessarily this conversation with and can offer. Um, right. you I'll know. have to do some thinking like what's the reference standard because that yeah, it's very, very interesting topic. Okay. Uh, Carolyn, why don't we go, let's go back and forth. Why don't we go, Carolyn, which session did you want to talk about first? I wanted to talk about an amazing clinical case that they discussed during the plenary session. So the great imitator strikes again, a curious case of headache that Dr. Ann Arneson from UPMC presented. And the case started off with kind of a typical headache picture and they did an MRI and actually demonstrated a frontal bone lesion And what shocked me um, was that it was from syphilis. So uh, osseous involvement of syphilis can actually occur at any stage, which was completely mind-blowing to me. And I'm like, oh, no, I I hope I have not missed this diagnosis. (laughs) Can I just say that during this presentation... When the first time the person went to the ER, they were like, "Oh, that's just your skull bone. Like you just that's just how your skull is shaped." Which that's no hundred percent what I would have said. Because I can it. I could see that happening. I don't think it's, it was even the wrong decision to no, make. No, I'm saying I would have said, yeah. I probably would have been like, oh yeah, that's, that's just the way that's your, your, your skull's for. <laughs> I wonder I how com- much syphilis you've missed. <laughs> <laughs> I commend them for working this all the way yeah. up, all the way through. You know, yeah. patient ended up with an LP. And I think um, this was my takeaway is that bony involvement is rare in syphilis, but maybe more common than we previously thought, even in early syphilis, where they quoted as many as 8.7 cases of sec- secondary syphilis to possibly have osseous involvement, which was surprising. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And we already we already mentioned that you were the next presenter at this plenary session. So, so we already we already talked you up. So uh not not to just to embarrass you while you're actually yeah. here to to be embarrassed. The best one. I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. It was the best part of the plenary session. I mean the other <laughs> ones were, were very good, but they were all excellent as well as the one that we are currently discussing. Uh you know Anne absolutely crushed it. And I think too she made a really important point that cases of syphilis are just rising throughout the country and that we really should be familiar, honestly, like with our own local prevalence of syphilis. And we should probably be screening patients who are low risk for syphilis, but 
uh, and high risk areas where we know that we're starting to see an increased number yeah. of cases. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to Google what is the prevalence of syphilis in my in my county. And and the new one that you're going to be moving to in the, in the near future because you're going to have to recalibrate totally. again. I'm probably just going to do one at a time because I'm probably just yeah. going to forget and then mix up the numbers and yeah, be, be like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, one at a time. And I did just right quick want to praise again, Dr. Arneson, who, because as a second year resident, I was just trying not to make eye contact with anyone. So to be giving this talk in this forum and being so poised and doing such a tremendous job and sort of answering questions, I thought, I thought it was a tremendous presentation. She did so good. I agree. Yeah. All right. Ira, now I, I heard that you have a podcast that you're on. Uh, and if you wanted to plug that and then talk about a, a session, a teaching session that you wanted to highlight. Yes, I've been known to participate in a podcast um, that is called The Curbsiders Teach, and we are uh, really excited to be in our third season, which is huge, and uh, through that, working with the amazing Curbsiders team. Uh, so, you know, it's no surprise that we like teaching and medical education, and at SGEN this year, we were trying to combine a few of our uh, mutual shared interests with folks from Yale, Monty, Colorado, um, and BMC. And so we uh, did a workshop called Training Up for Addiction Care, Nuts and Bolts of Addiction Medicine Education and Internal Medicine Residents. And the reason this is really important, I just want to shout it out, is that we all know that ACGME uh, has requirements for us, it turns out, and those sometimes change. And in the recent few months um, for addiction medicine um, requirements, those have evolved to, um, for especially internal medicine residencies, to not only have people be able to recognize the signs of addiction, but have um, residencies provide clinical experiences in addiction medicine. And what was um, really important is that in this workshop, we offered a framework, a curricular framework that folks can use to develop an addiction medicine curriculum that can fulfill these requirements. And so um, just want to uh, shout out um, Kendra Van Kirk from University of Miami, who um, introduced us to backward design and taught us at, at Curbsetters Teach, uh, episode number 21, in case anyone's keeping track, um, how to use this kind of curricular format and how to apply it, whether it's on rounds during kind of um, attending teaching time or when you're planning and building an addiction medicine curriculum. So really kind of easy to use, three-step approach um, to satisfy ACGME requirements. Okay. Uh and and Carolyn, your show would be a good one to uh, to supplement any addiction medicine curriculum, I believe. Yes, thanks. Thank you for asking. <laughs> the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine Season Two out July six. And Season One is really like core topics that yes. really should, if you want, like a build a a good framework. And then we're going to be like sort of adding layers to that uh, over time. So totally, definitely check it out. You'll have to find us on a separate feed, but but it's worthwhile. It's worth the search. Yeah. Okay, we will link both those in the show notes for this. But Carolyn, let's talk about demystifying obesity medicine for primary care. This was a workshop. You and I both went to the, attended this. Uh, the speakers, Dr. Noor Khan, uh, Murshid Kiazand, Lakshmi Naranjan, Mihir Patel, and Amy Shear. Um, three of the five people were there, right, at this workshop. I can't remember which. Anyway, it was a blur. But uh, And I also apologize if I mispronounced anybody's name. But they did a fantastic talk. And I wanted to recap some of their pearls. They did. They created a ton of great content and they sort of started us off really with the basics. And one thing I took away was really thinking about how do we counsel and almost provide lifestyle modifications for patients, particularly exercise. Because I think oftentimes I'm kind of like, yeah, move more, you know, hit, um, you know, at least 150 minutes a week. But they provided a mnemonic called FIT. So F-I-T-T-E. So advised frequency, you know, such as five days a week, intensity, moderate 
tea time, such as like 30 minutes during a lunch hour, tea type walking and eat enjoyment. You know, got to make sure that the patient actually enjoys mm. the type of activity yes. they're doing. Otherwise they won't do it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think the, for moderate intensity exercise, I usually just tell people it's like, you know, it'd be hard to carry on a full conversation while you're doing it. So not just like, you know, walking where you're talking, uh, constantly that that's probably you're probably not going intense enough to get the heart rate up uh what about so w what else from this session did you want to highlight i i have some stuff here too yeah i think another big thing that really just resonated because of my practice is i have a lot of patients who may be on antipsychotic medications that really yes, i love this point. you know struggle with weight gain and also their mental health is so important it's it's not so easy to just stop these medications but they have really um can have some negative cardiometabolic effects so i think it's really important to remember that we can add medications for individuals who are on antipsychotics such as metformin which can be really quite effective a GLP-1 or a fentyramine topiramate. And this has actually been studied and can indeed counteract the effect of weight gain. So I think for myself, um, I want to start these medications earlier, you know, truly. Once a patient is initiated on one of these, you know, give good old metformin a try and, and see if we can help counteract Yes. It. Yeah. So the antipsychotics are some of the obesogenic meds that they mention. Some of the other ones that are common, like the gabapentin pregabalin, Paul's favorite, he prescribes for everybody. Right. And uh, certain beta blockers like propanolol they mentioned. So uh, j just think about the medications. Valproic acid was another one that caused, caused actually, I think, the most weight gain of the tables they were showing. So think about those and think about prescribing some medication just to sort of mitigate the risk. Metformin, they said, is not necessarily going to give a ton of weight loss. For some patients, they might get 20 pounds, but uh, it's worth trying for probably two reasons. Number one, to try to mitigate, especially if you're prescribing antipsychotic. The other one is, I've had this happen where they won't, you, you can't get a GLP-1 unlocked unless you've tried metformin. If you're using it for diabetes, and also sometimes I've had it even off of diabetes, they want you to try other things before they'll let you prescribe a GLP-1. So I like that terminology you just use, unlocked. It sounds like a video game. It does. <laughs> like, yeah. What do I have to do it's to unlock level the next GLP level Carolyn, of medication? Carolyn, if you're not thinking of medicine as a video game that you're playing to get to the next level, then you, I don't think, she, Paul, she's not doing it right, is she? No, you're trying to win medicine. That's really <laughs> the, the whole goal. Here. My mindset has been changed <laughs> from here on out. Take I'll it from take America's PCP. <laughs> yeah. How do you think he, he's, he's yeah. won it? Uh, Every conversation is a contest. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Uh, okay. What else? Uh, any other ones from this? I, I had, I had a couple other points, but, uh, why don't you share with us? Well, the, the fentermine to pyramid, this is a bit of a rehash of a point, but, uh, everyone worries about fentermine being a controlled substance that's going to shoot someone's blood pressure through the roof, but actually bupropion is probably the agent that you should be more worried about doing those things. And actually in trials, fentermine to pyramid actually on aggregate had a lowering of blood pressure and probably related to weight loss, right. not not necessarily related to the, the effects of the medication itself. So I have started to prescribe it. Paul, I think you've prescribed it a couple of times. And mm -hmm. are you generally starting at the, the lowest? Like, is it the 7.5 dose? I, yeah, exactly right. Because I am a coward and it still the, the, seems reasonably effective. The yeah. speaker mentioned the Pearl that the 37.5 dose is uh, if you prescribe that and then tell them to take half a tab, that may be the cheapest you know way to get it covered. Um, I haven't tried that in practice yet, but it, it seemed like, uh, maybe something to consider yeah. if you're running into cost the point issues. Being you don't have to go in guns a blazing. You can, yeah. sort of, as we talked about in a different episode, titrate to effect. Yeah. And I mean, there, there was so much in this. One of the things coming down the pike that I'm excited about, there's these 
triagonists, which I they're still in like early tri like trials. I I don't even think we have human trials going on yet, but they're basically trying to add in glucagon with the GLP one GIP uh, agonists, and so they're calling these triagonists, where the GLP one GIP that sort of provides this anuretic effect and insulinotropic effect, and then the glucagon, while it would raise your blood sugar, uh, that's counterbalanced by those agents but it also, glucagon, increases energy expenditure. So they think that the combination of these three really might even lead to like even more weight loss, which I'm, I'm curious to see. Uh, so I'll link to the, I think it's a mouse study that I found, but uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see like how soon these things get, get rolled out. I don't know why hitting three just feels like a critical threshold that makes me nervous, and I don't know why. <laughs> it feels like the, wasn't it like a combination aspirin, statin, beta blocker at one point that they were trying to like, make work this feels hauntingly poly pill yeah, yeah, yeah it's still around i think it's still around uh and but yeah the beta blocker part probably not the greatest but the, there we we talked about the tri pills with jordy i barely pay attention and the yeah. calcium channel blocker uh arb and hydrochlorothiazide yeah. i have started to use those so uh so far so good paul all right <laughs> uh so era had to go but let's talk about sleep uh and tell me Tell me what was your favorite this we went to the sleep medicine one OSA so we have Jessica Camacho, Catherine Green, Mindy Busby, Ann Cartwright, Gruber Curtis and what I loved is it was a interdisciplinary team. Now since you're an improv person maybe Paul can be your patient and how would you counsel him? Paul set the scene. You're a patient about to be starting CPAP and uh, so why don't you ask Carolyn, you know, what that's going to be like for you? All right. <clears throat> Dr. Chan so I understand you start CPAP. What will that be like for me? You know, that's that's an excellent question, uh, you know, Dr. Williams. So I expect I'm that, still a doctor in this scenario? Yeah, you okay. still are. Right. This is a but doctor like, to like doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You're still yeah. a lovable curmudgeon yeah. okay. and yeah. everyone's favorite America's All doctors PCP. have primary care doctors too. We're mm -hmm. True. <laughs> Normalize having a primary care yeah. doctor. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. Please so, carry on. Uh, you know, I expect that you're not going to like it, honestly. <laughs> Probably much at all in the beginning. Um, but what we think is that it just takes a little bit of time to get used to. So one thing you can actually try to do is before you use it at night is to use it while you're awake to just get some practice with how it's going to feel and have the ability to better adjust the mask and the straps to make it as comfortable for you as possible. So you could practice using it while you're watching TV on your phone, not while you're recording a Curbsiders sure. episode. I mean, no one would notice. But, It'd be you fine. know, <laughs> um, something to consider. Yeah. And Dr. Chen, what would happen if I don't like the mask? Let's say, you know, I'm willing to give this a try, but I just, I don't like the way it fits. I don't like the way it looks. Um, do I have any kind of options or am I just stuck with this until I'm dead or should I just not use it then? I learned today that there are so many options. Like my mind was blown. You know, there are um, the types where you can do sort of the nasal pillows, which are just prongs in the nose. Of course, there's a classic, you know, over the nose and mouth, but they even have full face masks. And I was really impressed um, at how many accessories as well you can actually get to help make the fit more comfortable. And a little bit of this is trial and error. So if you don't like one, you can just try another mask until we find one that works for you. And allow me to interject, Paul, number one, you don't like most things. So the That's fact true. that you're not really going to like I really have the CPAP, bad test case yeah. for this, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, so they, they mentioned that they tell patients, it's going to probably take four to six weeks, maybe even longer for you to acclimate to it. So if you don't like it at first, don't give up hope, all hope. The second thing is that uh, for the attachments, they don't tell you this because the companies lose money on this deal, but actually you have 30 days to return the attachment if you don't like it. And one of the therapists was telling us that 
he used to work for one of the companies and actually patients can request a new attachment every three months because they don't last that long. So you can, you know, let's say you had a, a one of the nasal coverings and after three months, even if you're cleaning it every day, taking proper care of it, it you can you can request a new one. So the equipment can be can be fixed. So you need to ask about that, but they won't necessarily tell you because they, right. you know, cost them money, which I thought was great. I had no idea. Uh, and another common thing patients tell me is that they don't like the hose that sort of comes down uh, in front of their face, like that yeah. elephant trunk hose. And they say that, you know, when I toss and turn, it just like really gets in the way, gets tangled up. But I didn't know that you can actually get hoses that can be placed on the top of your head. So it's really, um, you know, falls back sort of posterior to you. So it really gives you more mobility. I think it's called the unicorn uh, hose instead of the elephant hose. I like it. I like it, yeah. Yeah, I, we would all rather be unicorns than elephants, Obviously. I think. Paul, gosh. Paul, when are you leaving again? <laughs> I mean, just whenever you let me go. Um, <laughs> and we talked about this before. So we we actually, part of, one of the breakout sessions was like to read through uh, what the report you'd get back. So most of these equipments now, they they have a modem, so they transmit to the patient's phone, and there's patient portals. The two big companies are ResMed and Philips, and they both have patient portals, and providers can get access to them too. And so you can look on there, and they'll give you like a 30-day look back. And so you can look at what was the median pressure, because most machines now are auto-titrating CPAP. Right. And you can either set them to a single pressure, or you can set them to a range. The, the starting range they recommended to us was something like 5 to 15 centimeters water. And uh, if you look and you see that the median pressure was 15 uh, and, and they're still having an AHI that's greater than five, your goal is to get their AHI apnea, hypopnea index to less than five, then you can, um, th then you can raise the pressure. So you might go up to like 8-18 or something. You, it sounds like you can kind of make it up. And there was somebody at my group who had a lot of experience with this. And, you know, we sort of asked, like, hey, if we're wrong and we raise the pressure, mm. will anything bad happen? Because I always get worried oh, yeah. and stressed yeah, about, like, yeah. pressing buttons yeah. and, like, yeah. and they were like, no, like, you could be wrong and nothing bad is going to happen to the patient. The setting is probably more uncomfortable. It's mm. not ideal. But health-wise, it's not going to. It doesn't go above 20 and probably they just won't tolerate it is what right. they told us. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I thought that was all really great stuff. And uh, the final part that I just wanted to mention, there was a, the, the leader of this group or of this sleep, because this was all, these were all folks from the same sleep medicine center, and she was the director. She's an ENT physician who does some of these surgeries. She did, uh, she did disclose that she uh, is a speaker or has been involved with the, um, one of these upper airway stimulator companies. Um, however, uh, she, she, mentioned, she went through a couple of the surgeries. So there's palate surgeries. There's tongue surgeries where they sort of decrease the volume of the tongue. Um, a lot of different options there. She said that what she does is a drug-induced sleep endoscopy to survey the anatomy and kind of inform like what surgery she might offer the patient. And uh, most of the surgeries tend to have about a 30% success rate, she said. Oof. So she said that CPAP, like PAP therapy is much better than that. So you really, you should try that before you even consider a surgery. And for this upper airway stimulator, uh, I think it's very well advertised. So patients will come in and be like, I yeah. want this. I'm not going to do CPAP. I want this. No one will pay for that unless they try CPAP first because it's, it is more effective. So uh, think about that. But that's almost like a pacemaker that gets put into the airway so that it's sort of as they're breathing in, the tongue goes out so that the air can go in. It's uh, timed with the respiration. But uh, I have not seen one of those in a while. Have any of you guys? 
of course, Chew Man has. <laughs> uh, was the patient happy with it? Okay, patient was happy with it. All right, so that's a that's anecdotal evidence. Yeah, I, N of one study. I think I have an N of one too. That Sounds the patient's like doing well. Patient selection is just huge for. Yeah, that was my take home. All right, well, Carolyn, I know we maybe only have you for a couple more seconds, and I guess uh, America's PCP the same for him. So, would you two like to say goodbye to the audience or uh... to each other? <laughs> Chan, always nice to see you. It's been a pleasure as always. Okay, we're gonna stay on for a few minutes, Justin. Justin and I, Chew Man's gonna jump in, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna finish with some more pearls. Justin, let's let's go to you. You've been hanging out here. What else do you have from today or from the from the conference? One of the big uh, things, one of the, the the sessions I went to was on clinical updates in dementia care and prevention by Halima Amjad, Stephanie Nothel, Mary Thomas, and Mia Yang. Uh, and this was kind of a nice overview of what the latest updates are in dementia. Talking first about dementia prevention and really focusing that there are uh, at least 12 modifiable risk factors that we do know account for at least 40% of dementias. And that range from everything from smoking to physical activity, social isolation, but even things like structural racism have been shown to be contributing to, 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 to long-term dementia. Um, and so that raises the questions of, is there things we can do to try to prevent dementia, dementia in people who are at high risk, either because of family risk or because of some of these risk factors? Um, and there's really three studies that, that we reviewed. So, so study number one, addressing hearing loss. And this was from Yao et al., a JAMA Neurology article in 2022 that was a meta-analysis that essentially showed a 19% decrease in cognitive decline for individuals who received hearing aids. Hearing aids lead to a 19% de decrease in cognitive decline over a two to five year period. And that's, that's important now because hearing aids are a lot cheaper, right? Because they're deprescribed. So they're like half the cost they used to be. So good time. Ma a major you reason like, to, yeah, to they're start not, They're not the prescription. You can get them over the counter now is what you're saying, right? Right. The, and so now because of that, there's a lot more competition and so prices have plummeted. Mm. Some more access. Um, that's great. I don't know that I realized that. So that, that's excellent. So I think this is one thing that I'm, I'm very hyper aware of now. If a patient is having some mild hearing loss, bringing this into the equation of you may not want to deal with this whole hearing aid issue, but like let's get it for you because it can help prevent cognitive decline, which I think made sense. Mm -hmm. um, the second, similar to hearing loss, vision loss. And so addressing vision loss, um, this came from a JAMA Internal Medicine 2021 article from Lee et al. That was an observational cohort, but uh, over about 3,000 people that demonstrated a 29% decrease in dementia when cataract surgery was performed. So if you had a cataract extracted, that was associated with a 29% decrease in dementia diagnosis. And this was more robust in, in the shorter term after the surgery. And this is just like observational, looking at patients who had cataract surgery versus didn't, and then they follow them out and, and That's say- That's right. Yeah. And there were issues with this being problematic as an observational study. It was through Kaiser Permanente patients, I think. And so there was 3,000 participants. It was 91% white. But one of the cool things that they did to control for access to eye surgery, meaning like maybe just if you have access to eye surgery, oh, you yeah. have less likely. They did compare to individuals who had glaucoma procedures or glaucoma surgeries that did not, um, that would not affect your vision, but would, you know, be a proxy for access to ophthalmological mm -hmm. surgery um, and did show even controlling for that, there was a robust decrease in dementia when cataracts are extracted. Yeah. So this is just the thing. Uh, the the other dementias session that I want to talk about later, one of the things they were saying for patients with mild cognitive impairment, 
they're they're just like, well, fix their hearing loss, you know, I guess fix their vision that would right. be another thing to fix and, you know, remove any medications that might be dulling their cognition and then reevaluate them and see where they're at. And I, w- I wonder if this is just um, part of that, like, because patients seem less sharp when they can't hear, can't see. Absolutely. And I wonder if it's also the brain just like gets more stimulation, more information. Uh, I think that's one of the theories is that it, you're able to focus on what's really going around. You're able to kind of take in the appropriate stimuli and respond yeah. to it appropriately because you have more accurate. Um, in the dementia session that you went to, did they talk about blood pressure? They didn't, but I know the Lancet, you know, the, the, you, the, the one that came where these 12 modifiable risk factors came from, this was like a 2020 paper. They talked about that. And I, I've been, I've been curious about that. That's one of my buy-ins to try to get patients to let us treat their blood pressure is like, is, is that it can help prevent dementia. Yeah. Good news, bad news. So uh, based on this update, uh, First, I will say that the reviewers went over the Sprint Mind trial and some of this other mm-hmm. data that did show significant reduction in mild cognitive impairment, but I won't go into it too much because really, unfortunately, in 2021, there was a new meta-analysis mm-hmm. study that looked at all of these studies, including the Sprint Mind, and ultimately showed no improvement in mild cognitive uh, impairment, no improvement in dementia. Did ultimately say that this is these are low-quality evidence sure. studies, so there's you know, signal that perhaps this is something that can help put off dementia, but the most recent um, highest quality meta-analysis, which admittedly is not great, um, showed no improvement uh, with aggressive blood pressure in improving uh, mild just, That's disappointing. Impairment. It is disappointing. Well, so it counts as aggressive, but like less than 140 over 90? It was a meta-analysis, so I think it looked at different uh, trials that had different definitions, yeah. but um, I, I imagine the targets yeah. were all over the place. Like, I'm okay with my octogenarian has like 150 yeah. or 90. Right. The, the other issue is like it's probably hard to prove because we're so generally, as we talked about on the previous recaps from ACP, we're we're not great at controlling blood pressure, so we're not. it's probably hard to like get someone that if you actually control their blood pressure for 30 or 40 years, like does it? Uh, I'm sure there's other benefits that, that too. So still try to control blood pressure, people. But, sure, uh, that's disappointing. <laughs> What else? Uh, anything else from this one? But in focusing on what we do have evidence for, uh, we talked about treating depression in dementia specifically, which is very common. There's a great article, Watt et al. from BMJ 2021, that looked at a comparative efficacy meta-analysis that the the short, long story short, there are mixed results in treating depressions with SSRI, SNRIs, and mirtazapine, which is kind of disappointing. They referenced the Sinbad trial that showing mirtazapine really had no significant effect. But there is some good news in that there are non-pharmacological approaches that may actually be more helpful in treating um, depression in older adults with dementia. And those are things like cognitive stimulation, which can be anything from you know crossword puzzles to, to doing things that are actively engaging in the mind, um, exercise and social interaction, massage and touch therapy, actually, um, and the fourth reminiscence therapy of talking about older times, showing photos, playing music that the person might have listened to in their youth. These are four evidence-based, um, statistically and clinically significant treatments for depression in older adults with dementia, the kind of stimulation, exercise, social interaction, massage and touch, reminiscence therapy that can really all be done at like adult daycare or adult day programs, sorry, adult day programs. Right. So it's, tell me, massage touch, like they get a massage touch or they're giving other people massage no, touch? No, they're receiving the <laughs> massage. Okay. And, and you can, you know, train a care partner to, again, really do, I think, just kind of physical touch therapy and massage. 
Did they touch on the the monoclonal antibodies, which seem to be so controversial? Is that something you wanted to bring up? Or they did. We can quickly go over the Clarity AD trial from New England Journal of Medicine 2023 uh, evaluated the new monoclonal antibody, lecanemab. Um, good news, bad news. Again, lecanemab binds to soluble amyloid beta protofibrils. Long story short, it is great at reducing soluble. Uh, amyloid. It's great. It gets yeah. it out of your system. We thought this was something, you know, that was a major component in uh, mild in as Alzheimer's. Uh, but unfortunately, the bad news is that clinically, the the reduction in function does not mitigate that much. Both the placebo group and the monoclonal antibody group declined in cognitive function. Then the the, the lecanemab decreased a little bit more, and it was statistically significant, though it's kind of unclear if it's uh, clinically significant, yeah. but there were some pretty significant adverse events, including a death. And these are among people who are brain bleed, right? Brain bleed. Yeah. And like, there are some like hemorrhages, including some asymptomatic hemorrhages that they kind of said, don't worry about. But this is all in a population that has pretty mild cognitive impairment. So this is not even, you know, we're not even talking about people with more severe disease. And so in people with very mild cognitive impairment, those adverse events are, are pretty significant. And so, so one question I have in, in the study is, you know, how did they identify the patients to treat? Because, you know, there are lots of different types of dementia. I mean, we most of the time we're, we're diagnosing Alzheimer's dementia clinically, right? So do they all have amyloid issues? I, I don't know. Like, how did they yeah. specify they, they those patients? I know to get it approved, you have to have a CSF test or a PET scan gotcha. in order to get it approved, like if you were trying to prescribe it for somebody. So I imagine the studies included that too. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I bet you they, they went with those mild cognitive impairments because they're trying to make the case for starting these medicines earlier too, yeah. right? So, And we shouldn't gloss over the fact that it was very controversial that the first aducanumab got approved. And I, I think this one's similarly controversial uh, and that there's this, what's come out in the past year about some data in, a, in some of the early amyloid studies was not on the up and up. So now people are questioning the whole amyloid hypothesis. I've read some experts who argue amyloid is still something we should be looking into. Other experts mm. are like, you know, were we chasing the wrong thing for the past decade, couple decades? So I don't know what to believe. I just know that right now, at least in patients with established amyloid, it doesn't seem, it's not like what we hoped it would be. Right. And again, like the amyloid, there's a wonderful draft, like the amyloid gets out of your system and right. that's just not clinically. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, cause, cause is the damage already done? And right. If you could prevent the amyloid from ever being there, would that work? You know, they don't, they don't know. So yeah. it's oh. still, but there's uh, apparently there's a lot of drugs in the pipeline. And one specifically denanumab is clinical trial data should be out any moment now. And there's some signal that it had an improvement in independent activities of daily livings, which would be clinically significant. Yeah. So that might be something in the near future. That's a similar, me similar mechanism though. It's, it's a monoclonal antibody. I'm not sure if what it started right. is. Right now when I'm talking to patients about dementia, I, I, it's still all about prevention, especially patients like middle age, forties to, you know, sixties that don't yet have dementia. I, I talk to them about that. Well, let me, let me give some of the pearls from my session. And I went to a great uh, workshop on dementia and primary care. The speakers were Dr. Barack Gaster and Dr. Jacqueline Rates. And uh, they talked about really practical stuff. I did want to plug up front that they there's a website that people can go to. Um, it's called cognition-primarycare.org and it has some really practical tools. There's even phrases for everyone's favorite electronic health record, like dot phrases that you can use and uh, just a lot of practical tips 
about how to evaluate uh, patients with dementia uh, or suspected dementia. And uh, one of the things they just said is like, look for the three worrisome signs. Um, you know, normal aging is something like you misplace your keys, you have trouble recalling names. Uh, but worrisome signs or if people forget something that just happened, if people are suddenly not able to do complex tasks like making some recipe for a holiday meal that they used to always make, or if they're becoming like lost or disoriented in familiar places, that, that would, those would be concerning signs. So you can ask about those, and then you definitely want to ask about a, a friend or family member if there's any other worrisome signs. So that, those, are, those are some of the ways. They mentioned that mild cognitive impairment, actually about 30% of those patients will not progress to dementia, uh, but 70% will. And the main differentiator between the two you know, because both of them can have uh, memory problems, but it's really when you start to lose ADLs that you start to call it, um, you, you would start to call it dementia. But the worrisome symptoms that I just mentioned and some memory trouble, those are the, those happen in both mild cognitive impairment and dementia. And uh, they recommended, as Justin, as I was mentioning with Justin, that sort of if they have any of those treatable risk factors like vision, like hearing, you know, you treat those. Uh, other ones they mentioned were like, if they're drinking alcohol, tell them to stop alcohol. Cause even if they were the person type of person that could have a bottle of wine and not be affected, you know, their whole life when once they're getting up there in age, it might start to affect their cognition. Take, ask them about if they're taking like diphenhydramine every night for sleep. And, uh, if they have sleep apnea or sleep disorder, treat that, treat their depression. All these things can really make mild cognitive impairment you know, if you think someone has mild cognitive impairment, maybe they just have these things. And, and so you would reevaluate them. They were a fan of the MOCA and, uh, you know, MOCA of 24 to 26 is in the mild cognitive impairment range and, uh, scores lower than that, more consistent with dementia, especially if they have ADLs lost. So I'm a slums fan. Anyone slums else do fan. slums? Mm, we didn't slums. talk about that. Uh, they, they, they mentioned that there's lots of sleep tests. The, the one that they, on their website, they just put one pathway down that they know is pretty practical. One of the practical tips about doing a mocha or slums, because it does take a while, right? Mm -hmm. So what they said is, if a patient brings up memory concerns, you should always take it seriously, uh, especially if you have like other staff or family members bringing up memory concerns. And you should, you should bring that person back for a, uh, tell them, listen, I'm, I'm worried about this. I want to make sure we have enough time, try to bring them back for like a, a, a longer visit, like a 40 minute visit. And then you can bill a 99215, use a time-based code for that. And the same thing, if you do diagnose dementia or mild cognitive impairment, you can bring them back uh, and to discuss what that means for them and maybe tell them to bring a family member as well, just so you're not super running behind in clinic yeah. and you can devote the kind of time that you need to so for this. I've got a good practical tip. I don't know if you guys use the SAGE exam. It's a self-administered ger geriatric exam. Hmm. No. It's actually was developed at, at The Ohio State. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, surprising. Okay. But if you type in OSU and SAGE, it's in a whole bunch of different languages too. Mm -hmm. And you can just print it out. I give them to my patient with a self-addressed envelope and they either mail it back or they can bring it back in their next appointment. So, And it's pretty comprehensive. So usually in my screening, I do like a a mini cog, and then if it's positive, then I give them a sage to go home. Oh, with. I love that. That's yeah. great. That is a nice I, little system. I do, yeah. And this is in multiple languages, very easily accessible online mm. from the Ohio State. <laughs> there you go. They have it in Croatian. <laughs> yes. There you go. They got some good languages. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, as far as treatments go, as far as treatment goes, 
I, I think the medications, they said generally they can be safe. They did say that you can give a six month trial of like Dinepazil, which is one of the most common acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Uh, usually since it's usually started low and then increased, you would, they, their practice was to also taper it off, but uh, you don't have to continue it. And once people have really advanced dementia, it's not as effective. So you can, you can taper it off in that case too. Cause then you're also worried about GI side effects, anorexia with that. So I don't use too much of it in my practice, but I thought that was helpful to hear that they taper it off. I know there's some concern about people just rapidly worsening when you stop them. But, uh, did they talk any about the ever growing beers list? Like I feel no. like every single medicine's on there now. So like we it's almost useless to me now. Yeah. We, we didn't talk about the beers list. So, uh, but I, I agree with you. Yeah. Like everything's on there. Um, my electronic health record pops up a little picture of someone with a cane whenever I order a medication that <laughs> oh, I shouldn't hilarious. be. And I'm like, yeah, they've been on it for 10 years. So <laughs> I, uh, yes. I don't know if we talked about it, but they just updated the beers list this year. Yeah. The 2023 updated beers Absolutely. list. It's getting bigger. I think it just gets I bigger and bigger. bigger yeah. Like it's every, yeah. like every blood pressure medicine, smaller, statins yeah. are on there. I don't know. Like, you know what? Benzos I, are I fine. Think, Go for it. Yeah. I, but do I do that. think that uh, it is important to just run the med list, think about how it's affecting the person's, you Absolutely. know, in, in general. In geriatrics, that deprescribing is like the best thing yeah, in, in geriatrics. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, we... Probably could end here, but Justin, if you really had like another thing that you wanted to... How about, how about some lightning round clinical updates in primary care? Yes, okay, no. Okay, let's All do right. it. Yeah. So yes, these. no. Hydrochlorothiazide, does it help prevent recurrent kidney stones? I want to say yes. New study, hydrochlorothiazide does not help prevent recurrent oh. kidney <sighs> stones. A lot of people like you thought it would, but the no stone trial showed hydrochlorothiazide does not help prevent recurrent kidney stones. All right, Mediterranean diet. Does it help reduce um, uh, uh, major adverse cardiovascular events for secondary prevention for people who have already had identified uh, heart disease? It's it's one of those bulletproof things like coffee, always a positive study. So I'm going yes. to positive study. Yes. Always a positive study. That's right. Mediterranean diet associated with a 27% reduction in MACE for secondary prevention from the Cordioprev trial, Lancet 2022. Come up, the Cordioprev's come up multiple times, and they must yeah. have a bunch it's of different things. It's big Mediterranean, man. A lot olive of money oil. behind that Mediterranean. Yeah. It's that this, olive oil money. This episode's <laughs> big, big olive oil, oil money, big <laughs> olive oil all over S. Jim. Um, <laughs> If a patient's EGFR starts going down real low, we need to stop the ACE inhibitor or ARB, yes or no? Well, you know, I, I hang out with some pretty cool people, so I'm going to say no. Uh, I'm going to say no. That's exactly right. <laughs> we do not need to stop the ACE inhibitors when there's a low EGFR per the STOP ACE trial in the Journal of Medicine 2022. Hello. Like as low as... I think just as low. Their study was kind of very, like a very narrow population. They screened a huge amount of people. We're not doing a deep dive in oh, this, but okay. I don't know that we're really, that many people were too worried yeah, about. They go it. right it's, into dialysis, we've, we've they'll stay on. We've talked before. Yeah. You, you can use them in CKD4. You just need to monitor potassium and exactly. uh, you know their overall trajectory of renal function. All right. And then the final one, I won't do a quiz, but I admit I had not seen this. I was sitting next to Emeritus PCP, Paul Williams, who had heard this <laughs> Jeez, one before. Um, New England Journal of Medicine, 2022, Poppy et al. Um, albuterol budesonide combination rescue inhaler was shown to decrease uh, steroid use, ED visits, and hospitalizations when compared to albuterol alone in patients who are already on a controller 
inhaled corticosteroid. Mm. So basically if you're on flutitazone and albuterol, but you're having asthma exacerbations, if you replace the albuterol with this new combination, albuterol budesonide, it decreases overall steroid use, EDs, and hospitalizations. So kind of cool. It's not in alignment with GINA recommendations, which would just say switch to the ICS uh, budesonide for, for exactly the formeterol. Um, but this would be another option. If the albuterol budesonide combination medication was available in the United States, which it's not, so this is kind of a mute study, but we should all be a know about it because I, we're academics and I, are I, curious. I think, and I think the point is that patients need, if they're having asthma uh, symptoms, they should be taking an inhaled corticosteroid. They can use albuterol as much as they want. We give it continuously when patients are in the hospital and really sick. But if they're using albuterol, uh, and having a bad day, a bad week, they should also be taking inhaled steroid. I, I, I think that's the most that I can take away from these. And uh, the ICS inhaled corticosteroid slash LABA long-acting beta agonist, uh, those, are, those are good ones um, if, you, if the patient can get them. Uh, a lot of patients still are just carrying around albuterol inhalers only. That's and I right. think that's what we most need to fix first before we argue about like, is ICS LABA better than ICS slash albuterol? Yeah, yeah, right, SABA. Exactly, yeah. ICS SABA versus ICS LABA. LABA. Yeah. How, how young were, was it in the study? Uh, it did go down to children. I forget how young I want, but, but the majority were adults. Probably like okay. 12 or something. That's always like the cutoff. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little <laughs> knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Are you still hungry for more? Join our Patreon and get all episodes ad-free, plus twice-monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash curbsiders. They're just blowing out the levels on the mic. <laughs> you can find... Sh- I've gotten feedback about this before, no pun intended. You can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback, so you can email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. You can also find the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. A reminder that this, uh, actually not this episode, this won't be a CME episode because uh, it's a rapid turnaround and I just don't have time. Uh, a special thanks to our whole team who helped with this episode. Uh, Ira, Carolyn, Chris, Justin, Paul. I don't think I'm forgetting anyone else, but if I am, I'm sorry. Uh, our technical production for this episode is done by Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Chris the Chew Man Chew is a moderator on our Discord. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. This has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. I've been Justin Lee Burke. Thank you and good night. <laughs>